This week on Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture, Father Nick Parker talks about world religions. What do they have in common? What makes them different? Is there one that is more fulfilling than another? Well, let's find out. Father Nick is being interviewed by Divine Mercy Radio's on-air host, George Tolman. We have Father Nick Parker here. And Father Nick can be defined as a theological scholar. He has a degree in theology from Mundelein Seminary in Mundelein, Illinois. He also has advanced degrees from the same seminary, a licentiate in, in sacred theology. And he has recently completed a doctorate in sacred theology. He is the pastor of the Immaculate Heart of Mary here in Hayes. Father Nick, it's good to have you on. Thank you. So this talk is titled, A World of Religions. What religions exactly will you be covering today? Yeah, so um, we, uh, we're covering today the five major religions of the world, uh, the largest religions. So there are two Eastern religions that we will look at briefly, uh, Hinduism and Buddhism. And then we will be looking at the three Abrahamic religions, which is Islam or Muslim religion, uh, Judaism and Christianity. And in the end, hopefully the idea is to show kind of the, the main point and the main goal behind each of those religions and highlight why we are in particularly Christian. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's get right into it. Beginning with Hinduism, can you give us a brief summary of this religion for our audience? Sure. So uh, Hinduism is going to be the most ancient of the Eastern religions that we're going to look at today. It's so ancient that we actually don't even know when it began. We don't have a, a particular person that we can attribute it to. We don't have a founder for it. Some scholars say that it was founded as early as 10,000 BC, so very old. Uh, the earliest sacred writings that we have in the Hindu faith stem from prior to 6500 BC. And there may be writings before that, we just don't have them. Uh, but uh, Hinduism is, is, um, is interesting in that many people say that it's a polytheistic religion, so many gods, all right? But it's actually more of a, I think it's more accurate to call it a modified polytheism. And the reason why we say that is because for the Hindus, they have one absolute deity, uh, and that absolute deity is Brahman. But then they have, other than Brahman, thousands or possibly even millions of other deities or other gods, but all of those gods are actually personalities or manifestations or um, aspects of the one god, Brahman. So one main god, but he has all these different parts and all these different pieces to him. Three of the main gods that are manifestations of Brahman are Brahma, without the N at the end. Uh, he's the creator. Uh, there's Vishnu, who's the preserver. And then there's Shiva. Oftentimes you see that is depicted as the one with many arms. Uh, that's the destroyer. But Hindus also will, along with that, find sanctity in, in spirits and trees and animals and planets. Another interesting thing about the Hindu religion, though, is that there is no one Hinduism. So I actually had a friend who was Hindu uh, years ago. Um, it was when I was a, an associate. We met by playing tennis. Um, <laughs> and uh, so if anyone out there plays tennis and would like to play, I've been looking for a partner for the past two years. There we uh, go. A little bug out there. Yeah, a little bug yeah, out there. There we go. Call me up. <laughs> let's let's uh, arrange time because I, I want to play tennis again. But anyways, we would talk about faith. And, and I asked him because like in Christianity, we have Catholicism and then we have all these other 
branches upon branches sure. of different uh, Protestantism. I asked him if it was the same in Hinduism. He said yes, but even more extreme. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. He said that basically every family, every household practices it in their own way. Hmm. Because with the thousands and millions of other gods, some manifestations of, of Brahmin families, they work together well. Others have a different combination that they will worship. Like they all have their own deities that they kind of um, move towards. But... Uh, but that's kind of the, the general idea of, of what Hinduism is, is, is you have the many gods and then they have also different uh, beliefs and traditions that are somewhat common. Their ethics and their, their deities and their, their ideas of reincarnation, there are some commonalities, but, but uh, in the end, like every household will live that out in a slightly different way. Is it kind of similar, and again, just correct me if I'm, if I'm off track here far so I don't mislead anyone, is it kind of similar to like language and dialect. So you have your main language and then there's like dialects of that language. And so like in this case, we do have, again, this um, kind of maybe this overall God here in, in Hinduism, but then there's yeah these, all these characteristic subsets and depending on household, as you said, it may have a different feel and take <laughs> a little a, a little bit. How does that, I guess, maybe even scratching that first, first comment a little bit, how, how does one, how does one decide, I guess, like, you know, worship or is it really just dealer's choice i think it's more like dealer's choice honestly. <laughs> okay. yeah I, I think that's a, that's a good way of putting it okay. i think it's even more extreme than like dialects and languages um uh because you know you might you might have your own deities that that you worship and your your neighbor might have a completely different set like it's i, I think it's incredibly varied and technically you're still hindu technically you're still hindu because you still i guess get to pick from the same deck of cards <laughs> What's the ultimate goal of Hinduism? So the ultimate goal for Hinduism, we oftentimes use the term uh, that it's nirvana. Uh, another word for the, the ultimate goal is Atman, which means the self. It's the divine reality. Uh, the idea is that Hindus believe that the self can actually become divine in a sense in which the soul eventually will become united with everything or one with everything. Mm. And once you have reached that state where you are united or one with everything, you've reached that nirvana, you've reached that ultimate goal. Brief summary of Buddhism, please, Father. All right, moving on to Buddhism. Well, the first thing with Buddhism is it might be helpful to kind of squash one of the common misconceptions out there, which is that Buddha is not a god. There is... In fact, if you really look at Buddhism, no God in Buddhism. Buddhism is atheistic. So with that, um, Buddha, it's, it's not a God. It's actually a title. And the title, it means enlightened, and it refers to their founder. Uh, their founder was named Siddhartha Gautama, uh, and he was the first and only one to reach true enlightenment. Because of this, there are people who will say that Buddhism isn't so much of a religion, but a philosophy, uh, more of like a way of life, because once again, it is atheistic. Now, people will also say, but we see the statues of the Buddha. Well, the statues of the Buddha are meant to help Buddhists honor the Buddha, but it's also supposed to help inspire them and keep them motivated to seek peace and charity and enlightenment themselves. 
but there is no worship of any gods in Buddhism. So with that, let's talk a little bit about their founder, Siddhartha Gautama. He was born in 563 BC of a royal family in what is present day Nepal. But being in a royal family, of course, he had all these riches and wealth. And and at the age of 29, he realized, basically, I have these riches, wealth, luxuries. They're not making me happy. Like, this does not lead to happiness. And so he started studying different philosophies and religions to find out what makes one happy. It was six years later, at the age of 35, that he, through much study and meditation, actually reached what he called enlightenment. He found what led to true happiness, and he then preached his message of enlightenment or happiness until he died at the age of 80. So what is this enlightenment? What is this happiness? Well, this is described through what he calls the four noble truths. And those four, four noble truths is, first of all, number one, life is suffering. You get old, things break down, you have to deal with all the evils in the world. Life is suffering. That's so a that's great the first. That's a great so the Buddha said, first of all, life is suffering. The second thing uh, that he said is that suffering is caused by craving and aversion. Basically, it's our attachments to the world that cause suffering. And so the third then noble truth is that suffering then can be overcome if you only are able to completely give up yourself. And when you completely give up yourself, then you've reached that nirvana. The fourth noble truth then is basically, there's eight subcategories to that fourth noble truth. We're not gonna go through those, don't worry. <laughs> but th those are the ways to attain that detachment. It's practices such as how to live a moral life, how to be aware of your own thoughts yeah. and actions, how to develop wisdom, how to develop compassion. It's basically, this is how, these are the steps sure. to attain that detachment. Sure. So that's really kind of what the Buddha tried to show is that even when you are able to detach yourself from your own desire for existence, that's when you're able to, in essence, avoid all suffering in the world and attain that true enlightenment or happiness. Can you talk first about what the ultimate goal of um, Buddhism is? Sure. Uh, the ultimate goal of Buddhism, just to use a, a really weird word, is, is anatman, which anatman. means no self. So Hindu was oh. atman, which meant the self. Buddhism is anatman, which is no, no self. self. Yeah. yeah. Basically, it's that full detachment, even that detachment from the self, even that desire to even be and exist. And that's when one reaches nirvana. In a sense, you can kind of look at this, and if you were to compare Buddhism and Hinduism, they're complete polar opposites. Uh, Hinduism, many gods. Buddhism, no god. Hinduism, you want to be one with everything. Buddhism, one with nothing. nothing. <laughs> so, yeah, they, they are kind of completely opposite ends of the spectrum. But that's really what Buddhism is, is okay. the no self, completely giving up of the self, total detachment, okay. one with nothing. On that comment of, of, of one with nothing, their father, it's, it's, it's almost we would maybe define as like, a true humility? I, I don't think we want to call it a true humility at all. Okay. Because true That's humility is an yeah. honesty yeah. of the self. Yeah. You know, um, we are supposed to have a proper honor of the self. 
anything outside of a proper honor is when we fall into pride um, in one way or another. Uh, but yeah, to, to totally deny even a desire for one's own existence, that's, that's not humility. So, okay, before we get to this set, looking at Islam, Judaism, and then ultimately Christianity here, Father, you mentioned earlier in the, in the intro about the Abrahamic religions. Can you just briefly talk about that? Because I think people, this is where some people get lost, especially in the, the Islam Catholic debates, that, wait a second, Abraham, and we're saying that these are the Abrahamic religions. What what do we mean by that? And and just help us out with it a little bit for the audience. Simply, these are the religions that trace Abraham as their father in faith. So we will get into a little bit of that with with uh, with the Muslim religion, but they do say that Abraham is their father in faith. Now keep in mind that Abraham had two sons. He had, before Isaac, he had Ishmael, and Ishmael was the son of, was the son of Abraham and Hagar. Hagar was the servant, right? And you can actually go, if you want to look this up, you can read about this in Genesis chapters 16 and 17, but read chapters 16 and 17 in, in the book of Genesis. You'll find how Abraham had the son Ishmael. And uh, the Islamic or the Muslim religion believes that they are descendants of the lineage of Ishmael. We, as, as Christians and, and the Jewish people as well, they say that we are from the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's where we trace our faith, our lineage, is, is uh, through his son Isaac. Really important point to bring out, folks, because sometimes, again, well, if you're especially in the apologetic realm and getting into this, you know, Abraham as our father in faith, but what does that mean? It does look different, you know, between the two. But anyway, let's keep talking about Islam there, Father. Uh, father. If you can just, you already did a little bit there, but give us more of the summary of Islam and what it's all about and all of that. Sure. So the Islam religion, the word Islam itself uh, just means active submission, and it's submission to the one God, uh, who they say is Allah. This was founded by the prophet Muhammad in 610, that's 610 AD. And um, Muhammad, he was born in Mecca, Saudi Arabia in 570 AD. Um, he, his father died before he was born. His mother died when he was very young. Uh, so he had to be raised by his grandfather. But at the age of 40, the story goes, the, this is the supposed story, is that the angel Gabriel appeared to him and wanted him to write down all of these different rules and, and laws and things of faith, which they now call the Quran. And the Quran is there in their, their book. And they also say that the Quran wasn't just a message from an angel. They say that that's the incarnation of Allah. So the incarnation of God for Christians is Jesus Christ. The incarnation for the Islamic religion is the Quran, the book. This book can only be read in the language in which it was given, which is Arabic. Any other translation, they say, well, that's just commentary. It's not the actual book itself. It's not it can the only real be thing. Read. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So we talked about how part of this was already, part of this faith was that they are from the lineage of Ishmael, son of Abraham. And there are, there's a lot more details to this, but basically they have five pillars of faith. Those five pillars of faith are first what they call the confession of faith. And that confession of faith is, there is no God but God, Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. So they all have to profess that, first of all. 
Second, they have to pray five times a day. And it's interesting whenever you're in a, a country with a strong, or even any area with a, a, a strong um, Islamic presence. Call to prayer. They have yeah, the call to prayer. It comes yeah. over the over the speaker. And I have other stories about, about hearing that as well. I got to go to the Holy Land when I was in the seminary, and uh, it would wake you up really early. And, and Muhammad was specific that he did not want it to be beautiful uh, because he did not want people to be distracted by the beauty. They want, he wanted people to just simply be called to prayer. You know, it's, so, um, yes, it's, it's not the most pleasant thing, and that's intentional. Real quick, Father, on the, on the prayer, the five times, what times of day are those specifically? Do you know? I don't know specifically. I know that there is an early morning, and it's early morning. I know that there's one around noontime, and I know there's one around sunset. Uh, but I can't say for sure about the other two. No, no problem. I'm just thinking of a positive court, a connection later. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Keep going there. So that's the second one is the prayer. Third one is they have to fast during the month of Ramadan. The fourth one is they have to give alms. And the fifth one is at some point in their life, they have to make a pilgrimage to Mecca. Uh, Mecca was the birthplace of Muhammad. So those are the five general pillars of faith. Now, there's a couple other interesting teachings that I think are important with the Islamic religion. The, the Muslims do honor Jesus, but they honor him as a prophet. They do not say that he is God. They do not say that he is the son of God, that he is just a prophet. They do believe that he was born of Mary and that it was a virgin birth. And so Mary is highly honored in the Islamic faith as well. However, because Jesus is not God, he is not considered savior. He did not save humanity. He did not have any sort of effect on that, the, the sin and death. They also believe in Jesus's ascension into heaven, but they do not hold a death or resurrection. So they do not say that Jesus ever oh. died. They did not say that he ever rose, but, but they do say that he, wrote, that, that he ascended into heaven. So it shows some, some uh, pretty significant differences there between the Islamic and the, and the Christian faith. Sure. And, I, and you may, I, may, I may be spoiling, spoiling something here, but um, Mohammed had a daughter named Fatima. Okay. <laughs> that has, yeah. a, has a little, little, little bit of an interesting connection to me. It with. is. And in the Holy Land, it's somewhat interesting that the site of the Ascension is still a pilgrimage site for the Islamic people. However, the site of the death and resurrection, um, although the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is the key to it is owned by a Muslim, is hold, held by a Muslim, oh. but the church itself it is not a site for Islamic pilgrimages. Uh, it's, not, it's not honored as, as a site because they don't believe that Jesus died and rose again. In fact, um, centuries ago during the Islamic Crusades, um, that was one of the sites that they themselves actually destroyed because they did not want people to go and start, start following this, this way of what they believed was a false way of Christ. We need to take a short break right now, but stay tuned to Divine Mercy Radio. We'll be right back with more about world religions with Father Nick Parker. We're back on Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture on Divine Mercy Radio. World religions. 
with Father Nick Parker. George Toman conducts the interview. We're talking to Father Nick Parker right now, talking about world religions, and we just had a nice summary on Islam. Uh, we didn't get to this, though. What is the ultimate goal of Islam? Uh, so the ultimate goal of Islam, to use another one of the weird, fancy words again, is uh, salama, which basically means to be resigned. Or in a sense, you could actually say that the word Islam, which means active submission, is its goal. So basically... Their, their goal is just to resign themselves to the will of Allah. You know, whatever Allah wants is, is what they do. And, and that's, that's really that's their ultimate goal. That's what they hope for. They just want to do, do the will of Allah. All right. So, and that's what your whole life and the practices all lean towards is that, is that following the will of Allah there. So, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. All right. Judaism. Brief summary, and we can go on forever about this one, but brief summary of, <laughs> of, of Judaism, Father. Well, let's just summarize it. The Old Testament. If you want to know um, the whole story of Judaism, just read the Old Testament. There you go. <laughs> but uh, the origin is once again from, from the life of Abraham, and they stem from uh, Abraham, his son Isaac, and, and uh, Isaac's son Jacob. Uh, so that's really kind of... Where it all begins is with this this covenant that God made with with Abraham. Now, if we want to go a little bit deeper, there are basically five primary elements to the Jewish faith. Uh, first of all, they are monotheistic; they believe in in the one God, um, the God of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. the The second element is that they believe that there is a special covenant with God, a, a very special bond with God with the Jewish people, and they will use the term that they are the chosen people. They are, they are the ones that God has chosen to, to reveal himself, to, to bring his presence into the world. So there is that, that covenantal relationship. That's, that's the, the second main element. The third element of their faith is that there is somewhat of what I would call uh, almost like an ethnic and territorial identity. So not only are they the chosen people of God, but there's there's this there's this strong notion of of them being this almost like an ethnicity themselves, and the t- territorial identity is that they do believe that God has given them a promised land, which you can read about that especially in the book of Exodus as they're Exodus, Leviticus, and, and Deuteronomy as they're traveling to that promised land, that chosen territory that God has set aside for them, which is basically modern-day Israel. So that's, uh, that's another important aspect of their faith. So that's the third, is their, their ethnic and territorial identity. The fourth is that there are a lot of specific laws and practices. They are very much focused on following the law, uh, especially as it was revealed through Moses. And then the, the fifth element is that they are a messianic religion, which messianic means Messiah. They're still waiting for the Messiah, though. They, they, uh, they do believe that there is a Messiah, a Savior, who is going to come and save them, but they don't believe that the Savior has come yet. So they, they are a messianic religion, similar to Christianity. Unlike Christianity, they're still waiting for that Savior to come. Could you also comment real quick, Father, a little bit off script, but just for our listening audience, too, the relationship of, of Scripture and the tradition of, of Judaism, because I'm thinking through like um, 
what's it called? Is it the Talmud? Is that is that what it is? Where yeah, certain, it's very good. Yeah, so certain, certain practices again. Yeah, so go go ahead. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So the once again, if you want to know the the Jewish religion in a nutshell, just read the Old Testament. There you got it. Within the Old Testament, they have what is called the Tanakh. Uh, the Tanakh is basically um, well, the Tanakh is the Old Testament, but in the Old Testament is also the law, which they call the Torah, right? So Tanakh is Old Testament. Within the Tanakh is the Torah, which is the law. And, and that, that's what you're going to find a lot in the, uh, in the book of like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, especially, um, just all these laws on how to offer sacrifice, how to, how to pray, how to, how to, how to cleanse one, oneself, you know, all of those laws are, are part of the Torah. That's another part of their sacred texts. But in addition to the Old Testament, and in addition to the Torah that is in the Old Testament, they have what's called the Talmud and the Midrash. Uh, the Talmud and the Midrash are their commentaries on the Old Testament and, and the, the Torah that's in it. So within the Talmud and the Midrash, they have all these other just different laws and regulations and, and ways of explaining how to, how to carry out all these laws and how to, how to live out all the rules that are in the Old Testament. So those are a couple other things that they say are, are sacred texts. They're not sacred at the same level as the Old Testament itself. But they still honor them as sacred texts because they explain. Yeah, they're informative. Yeah, I, I heard it. There was a guy on the journey home. Um, forgot his name now. Wish I wish I should, I should probably looked him up before. But he, he mentioned how if there was any ambiguity in the scripture, they would turn to the Talmud here or to the was it the midrash? Midrash. And if that had an answer, that's what we would do. So there was like a high kind of a hierarchy, if you will, yes, of good. how to answer problems of the day. So again, if, if you didn't have an answer in scripture, there was another set that's still, again, not as high as scripture, but it's there to where, hey, if I get the information, I can then use that as kind of a deposit of faith, for lack of a better phrase. But nonetheless, Father, what is the ultimate goal of Judaism? Uh, the ultimate goal of Judaism is basically the Torah. It's to follow the law. You could say that there's some similarities in there, you could make a comparison with with Islam, which is to do the will of Allah. But for the Jewish people, they do it through following the law, and that is the law that that is found in the Old Testament, and that really is their ultimate goal. Because they are still waiting the Messiah, there is not a universal teaching on whether or not they they believe that they will be be saved after this life is over. They they still don't know, without a savior, whether they will go to heaven or not after their life is done. So right now, the, the commonality between all those who, who uh, are, are Jewish is simply then to, because we don't know, we're just going to follow the law. Does obedience to the law for a Jew translate into coming of the Messiah? So in other words, if all of Judaism is being united, then the Messiah comes? Or does any obedience, like how does, what's kind of the interplay of that relationship from a, from a, a Jewish perspective there? Well... Or is there any I, kind of connection? I, I can't speak for for all all uh, Jewish minds. Uh, yeah. You know, even Judaism has certain branches yeah, and things like yeah. that. Yeah, but you know, in essence, there's they they don't know exactly when the Messiah is going to come, and I don't know if they believe that everyone following the law is going to bring the Messiah. Even so, with that, there's still a lot of unknown about who the Messiah will be, how the Messiah will come. There, there is an idea that the Messiah is going to restore Judaism, but, uh, 
But even that, I don't know if it's completely certain among all branches of Judaism what that will look like. Some of them have a very clear idea of what that will look like, others not so much. The only thing that's really common is, you know, we just, this is what we have, so this is what we're going to do. We're just going to follow the law of God. To me, as a Catholic, it sounds like you're in a perpetual advent. Yeah, that's a, that's a great no way Christmas. of looking at it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Father. Uh, we could literally go on for days on this next question, but brief summary of Christianity. <laughs> All right, brief summary of Christianity. Well, we're just going to make it super simple here. If you want to know Christianity, look at the creed. It's, it's really, if you want the very basic, that's it. And in fact, if I might just give a plug for uh, Cardinal Ratzinger's, if uh, Pope Benedict XVI's book, um, Introduction to Christianity. It's a good one, folks. It's it's yeah. fantastic. And that's basically what he does, is he just does a narrative through the creed. It's very deep, it's very beautiful, and it's, it is an introduction to Christianity. So, yeah, if you look at the creed, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Any questions? Yeah. <laughs> okay, lots of them. But in the end, I think it's important to show that it's all about salvation. If we want to put it in one uh, another word, it's about salvation. Keep in mind the narrative behind all of it. Uh, God created the world. He created Adam and Eve. He created the human person. And then he said, you can do anything you want here, just don't eat from this one tree. But unfortunately, they were tempted. They ate from the tree. And because of this, we were separated from God by sin and death. That's what brought sin and death into the world. And so with this then, God basically from the very beginning had to form a a rescue mission, if you will. And, And that's what the whole timeline of, of, of us on earth is, is this great rescue mission of God, which in order to bring this about, God himself becomes incarnate. He sends his own son, Jesus Christ, to walk our walk, talk our talk, live our life, die our death. And when he does this, he then is able to, through this, destroy sin and death, restore us to that relationship with God, and if we then unite ourselves to Christ, we are able to become reunited with God as well. That's, that's what we're about, is we're about that salvation. Yeah, the, you know, we, we had a couple talks yesterday and the day before talking about the impact of original sin and looking at how the restoration of humanity through our, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and how where Adam and Eve failed... Jesus, and I'll also say Mary there as the new Eve, as, as is what uh, the Ave Maria Stella says, you know, Ava's, Ava's name re- reversing, you know, how that all, that, that, that restoration and being, in, being right with, with God there. Um, and again, for most of our listening audience, I imagine 99%, if not 100% most of the time, we are under the Christian, Christian persuasion. So, Father, we mention these, these different religions these main religions of the world, and obviously there's little subsets, but you cover the main basics of the, the traditional tenets. And again, like even in Christianity, if you were to say, 
you know, this is the basic tenets of the faith here. You will find a denomination or two that, you know, maybe not. But nonetheless, we got the basic tenets covered. Why should we be Christian? Why should we, we be Christian? Well, to explain this, I'm going to do a, just a brief review of the other faiths. Absolutely. We're going to look at their primary goals, right? But when we look at the primary goals, you're going to see that there's actually some what of a, a, a bit of a problem that we're going to have to face when we look at all of them. So let's start with the Eastern religions. Hinduism. We said that the ultimate goal of Hinduism was to be one with everything, or, or we called it Atman. It's, it's the self, all right? The issue is that if one eventually becomes one with everything. We are united with all of creation and everything around us completely. We've reached that state. Then, in essence, it takes away the uniqueness of the individual. You, as an individual, are kind of almost um, dissolved. Like, there's, there's nothing that is necessarily completely unique uh, about you. In addition to that, then... Look at what this means about one's relationship with God. As soon as we become one with everything and we lose the uniqueness of you, you also lose that intimate personal relationship that you can have with God. That, that's, that's gone. You can't have it anymore um, because you've dissolved within the entire whole. And so there really isn't that sort of, that, that sort of fulfillment in life, that, that fulfillment that we find and our deep union with God, it's, it's kind of gone when all of a sudden we've become united with the whole. So, so that's one of the issues that, that we kind of have to face with, with Hinduism. Um, when you're one with everything, you're in itself, in and of itself, dissolved into to nothing in a sense. So, so that's, that's the issue with Hinduism. Let's go with Buddhism then, because Buddhism is kind of the, the opposite of Hinduism, we said. Uh, Hinduism was to be one with everything. Buddha, Buddhism is to be one with nothing, all right? Or we use the word anatman. Well, it's kind of easy to say, well, if being one with everything doesn't help, so let's, let's go the opposite way. Let's be one with nothing, and then that'll solve the issue. But, you know, oftentimes virtue is the middle of two extremes, yeah. and this is the other extreme that we don't want to fall into. Because if you are giving up the self such that you don't even have attachment to yourself, you don't even have attachment to your own existence, and you are becoming one with nothing, then in essence, that eliminates the sanctity of you as an individual as well. Like your dignity, your worth is gone, which means that there's, there's really no true fulfillment in that life either. You can't find it. If... If you as an individual is, is meaningless, I mean, what does, that, what does that do for you in life? And also, keep in mind, Buddhism is an atheistic religion. Buddha is not God. He was just their founder, right? The statues that you see of Buddha are not statues of a god. They're statues to inspire people to attain enlightenment. But if there's no god, then, I mean, whether you receive fulfillment in this life or not, what does it matter? Yeah, <laughs> you know yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. For if only one person in history has ever attained enlightenment, well, then wouldn't it be easier to give up and just live a life of yeah, hedonism? Yeah, the odds are not in your favor. The yeah, odds, kind of yes, <laughs> the, the odds are ever not in your favor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so there's there's a real lack of fulfillment in that Buddhism as well. So, 
those are the Eastern religions. Let's now go with the Abrahamic religions. First of all, Islam. Well, keep in mind that with the Islamic religion, they say that Jesus is not God. But if Jesus is not God, he did not die for our sins. He did not save us. And also, if Jesus is not God, what does that mean about our, our relationship with God? The Islamic faith believes that God became incarnate in the book, in the Quran. It's hard to have a deep personal relationship with a book. But Jesus became a human person so that we could have a very deep, intimate relationship with a person, with a God. And that way, our deep and intimate relationship with God could then last for all eternity. There's that good aspect of, yes, we want to do the will of God, but to what end? Because that deep relationship can't exist in that sort of a construct. It only exists if we can have that intimate relationship with a person. There's, there's kind of the, the difficulty with, with Islam. Uh, Judaism, uh, we said that the goal of Judaism was to follow the law. But once again, if Jesus is not God, we're not saved. And Judaism is not only waiting salvation, they're, they're awaiting a fulfillment of a relationship as well. So once again, there's that, there's that missing fulfillment there. With Christianity then, the ultimate goal of Christianity is full union with God. That's really what we're looking for. And we'll use different words to describe that. We'll, we'll call it like holiness is full union with God. We'll call it the eternal salvation is full union with God. Uh, sometimes we'll use the term divinization as full union with God. But either way, it's full union with God. That's the only thing that can bring a human person fulfillment. That's the only thing that can really help us to live as we are created to be, as fully human. And it only exists within the, the Christian faith. That's why we're Christian. It's, it's the only faith that gives us that fulfillment, that deep relationship, that union with our God that lasts here and now, that, that can be here and now and lasts for eternity. No, it's very beautiful, so. Father. Again, go ahead. Right, yeah. No, that's great. So um, the, the statement that you're, that, uh, that you're wanting to look up, um, I think it's in the Catechism. I know it's also in the Church documents. But it says, the fullness of truth subsides in the specifically Catholic Church. Catholic. Not just in Christianity, the Catholic, Catholic Church. Church. And it says that the fullness of truth subsides in. It's very important to, to realize because it doesn't say that we know the fullness of truth. Uh, it doesn't go there. But it says, by saying it subsides in the Catholic faith, it's saying that we, it's, it's only in this faith that we can come to the fullness of truth. It's, it's only through this faith that we can truly know the fullness of truth. Then it will go on to say other faiths have elements of those truths. And if you continue to study this, you'll see that the different faiths will have it to different degrees. There's been spiritual writers in the past that have compared Catholicism to Buddhism. And there's been spiritual writers that have compared it to, to Hinduism. And of course, we're constantly trying to be in dialogue with those who are Islamic and those who are Jewish. And we're constantly trying to reach out in an ecumenical way. 
but it's so that we can bring everyone into the fullness of truth. It's not just so that we can come up with the lowest common denominator and say, hey, see, we can live together. We don't settle for that. Correct. We want everyone to know the fullness of relationship with Jesus Christ, that that absolute fulfillment can only happen in the Catholic Church. No other church is going to give you Jesus himself in the Eucharist. No other church is going to let you know the liberation of reconciliation. And no other church is going to be able to explain this fully through the scriptures. We are still very much a scripture-based religion, (laughs) you know, and scripture and tradition, they feed each other. They help each other. They help each other grow. But we are still very much, yes, a scripture-based religion and a tradition-based religion that that they both support each other, never contradicting. They serve serve each other. Serve each other, always leading us to this full relationship with, with God, that full union with God. Father Nick, your blessing, please. All right. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Father Nick. Thank you for tuning in to Double-Edged Sword Cutting to the Heart of a Deceptive Culture. Folks, heaven is not seen, but neither are these airwaves. But if you can help save souls for heaven by helping these airwaves stay on the air, please go to dvmercy.com and click on Donate, where your donation will be seen and appreciated. You're listening to Divine Mercy Radio 101.7 KJDM, Lindsberg Salina, 105.7 KMDG Hayes, 88.1 KRTT Gray Bend, and 88.1 KVDM Hayes. If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts.